We're going to finish up the fourth chapter of, of Hebrews here tonight. We have a few more verses that talk some more about the rest as we get into the next section, introducing Jesus Christ as our high priest. In verse, uh, just a review, verse 8 9, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. So the rest that Joshua led, <clears throat> led them into was not the final rest. There was another rest. In verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So the example we use here is that the same way that God had ceased from his works, this is the type of rest that is there. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. Now, when God ceased from his works, does that mean they stopped working altogether? That's not the idea of it. What we have in the book of Genesis is that God spent six days, or six periods of time, creating. And that afterwards, he rested where the creation was done. Everything that was created it was, was done in those days. And as uh, we've, we've seen in the Word of God already, even the plans for our life, God did before the foundation of the earth. So even that creation was all done. So when he rested, he stopped doing the work of creation. Now he maintained it. And there was a maintaining that was going on, but he's not creating sun. He's not creating the sun. He's not creating the earth. He's not creating the, the uh, land or, or uh, animals or all that's been done. And then he rested. But he's still very much involved in all the goings on of the earth and still maintaining it. Hey, you all know it's a whole lot easier to maintain something than it is to create something. This isn't exactly creation, but to build a house, we'll just relate that as the creating part even though you're not really creating anything to the degree that Jesus was. Or, uh, if you build a house, that's a lot more work than it is to maintain a house. If you do maintaining, if you maintain a property, you do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit, and, and it just, you can keep it going. There's not nearly as much work as going out there and laying the foundation, building the walls, putting the electrical wires in, all that sort of stuff. We don't want to have to do that. So he rested from his works, for he who has entered... His rest has himself ceased from what? His works. His works. As God did from His. So in the same way that God rested from His works, but is still very much involved in all the things that are going on, just keeping those, not creating the principles anymore, but taking those principles that have already been created and keeping them going. We've got to do the same thing. But we're not here to create more of these, of these things. And I gave you some examples here. I guess a little bit further on down. But I put this in your outline for you. As God did from His, God did not stop working. He stopped creating. But He didn't stop working. He was still there working on behalf of Abraham. Still there working on behalf of Israel. Still there working on behalf of David. Still there working on behalf of the church. God didn't stop working. He ceased from creating but continue to sustain. So there's some things we've got to do to sustain the principles that are already involved, but we've got to stop doing it from a place of works and do it from a place of rest. 
So we're not creating salvations. We're not creating healings. We're not creating provisions. We're just maintaining. I just take the promises of God that have already been put in operation that were there to create salvation, that were there to create the healings, that were there to create the provisions, and I just maintain them. But I do it from a place of rest, not from a place of works. A lot of times Christians are going at this trying to create the healing. But what Jesus did is already created the healing. That's already done. I don't have to create the provisions. I just got to walk in the provisions that have already been created. So that's where we walk, get into this place for, for rest. But he says, be diligent to enter the rest. You got to be diligent. There's a diligence that needs to be on our part to make sure we enter into the rest. Obedience takes us to that place, puts us in a position, and then we went over some of those things we needed to do to get us to go into the rest. <clears throat> Put this in your outline. If we don't... I, I reworded that, didn't I? If we... <laughs> well, we don't want to follow the same disobedience that, uh, that kept Israel from getting in. So if we don't be, stay diligent, the warning is that some will follow the same disobedience that Israel had fallen into. So that's the warning that's given to us. Don't, don't go after the same disobediences there. Let's read that again, verse 11. Therefore, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. We can follow that same example. Israel was supposed to enter into the rest, but they decided not to believe the word of God, not to have faith in what God said, and because of it, they didn't enter in. Then they tried to go in on their own works. That didn't work. And then God had them get wiped out in the wilderness and raised up a new generation. But be diligent to enter into that rest because that's the place we have the victory. Not the place of works. The place of rest. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I was doing some reading on this particular verse to get some ideas. Uh, I've, been, I've been working on this thing like all day. <laughs> I started this morning getting the uh, podcast caught up because, glory to God, the, <laughs> the good computer is, is back. And it was there to, to work on things and able to zip through them, you know. And, and uh, I think I got two of them done in about 45 minutes, got them all taken care of. And it would have been all morning to, to do it on the other one. Glory to God, I'd get, it, get it cut down. But anyway, after that, I started working on this right away. And I said, because I wanted to post something up on Facebook of what we're going into. And I didn't have enough done to post anything up on Facebook by the time the morning got done. So I said, well, let's just go on down to church and we'll pick it up over there. So I came on down to church and worked on it some more and worked on it some more. <laughs> Got to do this from a place of rest, right? <laughs> Glory to God. But this is one of those verses that you look over and you can say, boy, there's a lot in there, but I just don't think I'm getting it all out of that. So I was reading over some of my favorite people on this. A couple of them I read that, well, that's, 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 that's not um, hitting it for me anywhere different than I understand it. So I was reading Brother, Rick, Brother Rick's uh, devotion on this, uh, checking out some of the things that he's got on that. And if, if you know how to use his uh, little things he has out there, you can, you can find just about anything in those big books he's got. Because he has some big books. But you can find them. So he's, he put this in there. This, this word here for two-edged sword. It's a, a combination word. And <clears throat> my apologies. I left the Greek word in there. I left it in there because I wanted to make sure I could pronounce it. <laughs> I, 
I cannot pronounce Greek words from English. I'm not, at least not with any confidence. But distomas is the, is the word, and it's a combination word. The, the first part of this, and this is why I wanted to read it for you, the first part is dis. The first part means two. Two. The second part <clears throat> comes from the Greek word stoma, which means mouth. What this word means is two mouth. So why do we get two two edged sword? Isn't that kind of odd? So Brother Rick had this observation about this thing. He said the reason that and this word is used three times in the New Testament. Once here in Hebrews, and the only other place we see it is in the book of Revelation in chapter one and in chapter two. Uh, in my outline has the references in. I think I took it out of yours because I ran out of space. <clears throat> but it's Revelation 1, verse 16, and Revelation 2, 12. You remember where the sword is coming out of his mouth? Two, two-edged sword or two-mouthed sword is what it can be related to. So Brother, Brother Rick put it, to, put it this way. I, I actually wrote it out and put it out here for you so you would have this. What comes from God's mouth to our ears still needs to proceed from our mouth to be an effective weapon against the enemy. Now, I paraphrase Brother Rick there. He, he, he's a little more wordy than that. <laughs> not that they're bad words. I mean, that's, that is bad wordy. It's a little more involved in, in that. But I just tried to summarize it for you and put it here. What comes from God's mouth to our ears still needs to proceed from our mouth to be an effective weapon against the enemy. So what happens is that God speaks the thing. It comes to our ears, which produces the faith. But it has not the effect of a two-edged sword until we, with our mouth, say the same, same thing that God said. We need to proclaim that. And that's when it becomes a two-mouth sword. God's mouth and our mouth. It doesn't help that it's just God proclaiming it. It won't change anything in your life. The way it will change something in your life is when your mouth speaks what God said. Now, if you say something that God didn't say, it's the same thing. Because you, haven't, you don't have a two-mouth sword. You have a one-mouth sword. Because you're just saying whatever you want to say. But when God says it, I hear it, I believe it, I have faith in it, and then I speak it. Now we've got a two-mouth sword. Now this is going to have something that's going to, going to do some damage here. For the Word of God is living and powerful. It is living and powerful. The Word of God is... It is unlike anything else that's out there. And you, you hear people and they want to talk about the Quran and they want to talk about these other religious books, the Book of Mormon and all these other things. And they want to talk about those, but they're not living books. But you see, they see the, the Word of God in the same way that you see the Book of Mormon. If you pick up the Book of Mormon and you read it, you get no life out of it. And when they pick up the Word of God, they don't get any life out of it because they don't believe it. But when you mix faith with the Word of God, it becomes life like nothing else. Like no other book that man can write because this one was written by God. And so this book, this, the Word of God, is living and it's powerful. There's a power that's to it. And so we've come to, to, uh, to know that people in the world don't. We kind of expect that it's just going to happen for them. But you see, unless they, they hear it, and believe it, and have faith in it, it doesn't change it. It doesn't do anything. In order for it to become a two-edged sword in their life, it needs to, and they, <clears throat> they need to hear it. Once it gets on the inside of them, they need to have some faith with it. 
If they're not going to believe it, they're going to treat it as foolishness. It's going to be like foolishness. And so even though you, you look at the Word of God and every time you read it, oh, wow, that just ministers to me, just gives me life. It just mm. the People in the world, they, they don't get that. They don't get the same thing. It's there for them if they wanted to get it, but they're, they're not in a place to do it. But it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, the word here for sword is a particular word that is used of a sword <clears throat> that the Romans used, and the Romans actually invented this. Now, we're not going to give you all the details of this. I believe if you go back to Brother Rick's book on the, uh, the armor of God, he will do that for you in there. I'm not, I didn't read that recently, but I'm pretty sure he does this. Uh, so I'm not going to give you all the rendition of all the different types of swords that there are, but there are two main swords as you look at it here. When the Romans came on the scene and they were trying to become the world power, they were facing barbarians and, and uh, different ones that they were, they were out there. And what these guys did was they got these huge swords, huge swords, big, long, long things. And, you know, they're big guys. And so they took these big swords and what they would do is they would take them and you'd, you'd get way back there and you wind up and you just you go at it and you had so much weight from the sword and so much thrust from these guys that they could slice through things. Um, people, mostly. <laughs> and so that's, that's their idea with it. When the Romans came on the scene, they decided, we're not going to go in that direction. We're going to go in another direction with our swords. And so what they did was they took a sword that was about 18 inches long that they could put in their belt and that you could pull out. And that, that particular word for sword is what is used here. It's that short Roman sword, and they put this on every person. So everyone had one of these. So when the barbarians saw the Romans come up with these short little swords, they said, you know, laugh at them. What are you guys going to do with those little things? Come on over here, and we'll have some fun. But you see, when they got out there with the big sword, they'd take a wind-up, and they'd swing. Well, all you had to do is duck and get out of the way of that. And then once you did, that momentum is taking you on over, and, and they just come up with that little sword and put you on the ground. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how the Romans defeated these guys with the big swords. They defeated it with the little sword. And this is what they, what they had. So these are the kind of swords, little tiny, uh, 18 inches is not necessarily tiny, but it was tiny compared to what was being used in those days. It was the smallest of all the swords that were out there. There were about five different types of words, I think, for, for swords. This is one of them. There are about four other different ones they would describe, and from long to medium size, and all of them with different purposes. <clears throat> some of them just had points. Some of them had sharp edges and no points, and some of them were just big and long and all kinds of different function. But this particular one, it was pointed. It was sharp on both sides, two-sided. Two and that's what they would do. But we put this thing, a two-mouth sword, little sword, one that you could easily wield, one that you could easily take care of. And, and um, they, they defeated their enemies with these little tiny swords. <clears throat> For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now we gave your brother Rick's part on this, the, the piercing even the division of soul and spirit. Uh, I went to another place. I, I, I have a, a work. I've referred this to you a few times. And no one here has this. I, I know this because no one is crazy enough to spend this much for books except people that do this all the time because uh, th probably this one set of stuff costs more than most people's entire library 
of Christian books um, by a lot. But um, I was able to see, it's not even in print anymore. I was able to find a copy years ago, many years ago, and um, constantly use it. This is just an invaluable source. It gives me stuff that I just can't get any other place where I can find out how a word was used in classical Greek and Septuagint Greek and in New Testament Greek. And you can see how the word progresses and how it's being used in all these, all these different areas. So what I did was I copied part of what was in there so that you all could see this. So this is what it talks about the, as far as the piercing, even a division of soul and spirit. It penetrates more than the physical body. It is, a comprehens- it is comprehensive in its effects. It reaches into all the various parts and functions of the individual and makes judgments. The emphasis is not upon the separation of one part from another, but upon the penetration of all the individual parts, even down to the innermost secrets and purposes which are hidden in the core of an individual's conscience away from the eyes of other people. Now, does that change that meaning on, on that a little bit? Because a lot of times we focus on this, we're looking at the separation. Now, here's how the Williams New Testament translates it. For God's message is alive and full of power and action, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even the depths of soul and spirit to the dividing of joints and marrow and passing judgment on the thoughts and purposes of the heart. Now, he captured most of that that was in my... Uh, <laughs> wonderful little resource there captures most of that right there in the translation for God's message is alive and, po- and full of power and action sharper than any double-edged sword piercing even the depths of the soul and spirit so the word of God is able to get beyond just your physical body and it's able to pierce into the innards of a person not just into your spirit but also into your soul and the, the, the Word of God is so much of a living, uh, powerful tool that it is able to get into your soul and give your soul what it needs. Because your soul is different from your spirit. Therefore, it has different needs. And it's able to penetrate right into your soul and give your soul what it needs. It's able to penetrate into your spirit and give your spirit what you need. And all, of course, if you minister to the soul and the spirit, you minister even to the body. But it's able to go beyond just the, the, the surface parts. Just not, not just ministering to your mind. Whereas works by men are able to minister to your mind. And you can fake or, or you know, persuade some that it's had an effect upon your soul and your spirit. But the Word of God it doesn't have to fake anything. It penetrates all the way through. And it's able to find out, alright, here's the soul. And this is what the soul needs. Here's the spirit. This is what the Spirit needs. And it's able to give each one of those things what you need. That's why we've got to make sure we give attention to the Word of God. <clears throat> because it's there to help us. Oh, like nothing else is there to help us at all. This is, this is what we need. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is so good, it gets into your soul, it gets into your spirit, and it's able to discern between, this is what you're telling people, but it says, no, 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 we've uncovered all that, this is what you're really doing. <laughs> and it's able to get right in there and just take all the, all the covers off, 
all the good little wrappings and things like that and say, no, this is what's going on. And once we've exposed what's going on, then we can, this is what the real problem is. Or maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe people have told you it was a bad thing and the Word of God's coming in and exposing, no, this is good. Don't always think negative. Sometimes, you know, the Word of God's going to come in and say, no, 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 this is great. This is, this is God and you coming out. Let this, let this go. But the Word of God is able to do that. So when we go to the Word of God, we need to approach it as a living and powerful tool. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to penetrate and give the spirit what it needs and the soul what it needs. And able to get through and uncover all the thoughts and intents and expose what is necessary and what will help us. So every time that we go to the Word of God, we've got to keep this verse in mind. This is what it's able to do. The Word of God, everything that we have in the Word of God is what God has said. Think about that. Everything we have in the Word of God is what God has said. God has spoken it to us. Glory to God. I've got the words of God in my hand. I can carry them around. In fact, technology has gotten so much better than it was in the early church days. You know, they didn't all have a Bible. They don't all have a copy of it. Now we all got a copy. We got a copy on our phones. I got a copy on my phone in Greek, twice, in, in I think 10 different English translations I have on there, on my phone. I can do more on my phone than, than the church people could do in the synagogue, just on my phone. And then I get on the computer and I open up all kinds of other things that I can do. With that, because you know the phone's still a little bit limited compared to what a computer can do, and boy, we can just you know put things together and do things, and I can understand things from the Word of God if we use all these all these tools that we have. But the whole the whole thing comes down to it's the Word of God that we need, not all the commentaries, not all the other things. All those things are there to help us understand what does the Word of God say. But the Word of God is so good; it's able to do that. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom must be given account. I pulled this out for you in the Weist translation. <clears throat> not Williams, this one's Weist. And there is not a thing created which is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and laid bare to his eyes to whom we must give account. And there is not a thing created which is hidden from his sight. Understand that. That means everything that's on the inside of me that I didn't try and cover and hide from other people, it's not hidden from him. Every intention, good and bad. Every word, good and bad. Everything I've done, good and bad. Nothing's hidden from him. He sees it all. But all things are naked and laid bare to his eyes to whom we must give account. So there's nothing to hide from him because he sees it all. And the Word of God is able to penetrate down on the inside, help us out, help us to, to be able to do good things with us. So that was Weist translation on that. And, and Williams uh, comes to you. My, my nephew, had um, he listens to the podcast here. And so he, he's heard me get on with Williams every now and then and quote that. And I think I must have mentioned that I didn't, I couldn't find this online anywhere. I'm always bringing the Williams New Testament in with me and reading from it. And so he sent me a note. He says, uh, 
That's great. He said, Uncle Steve, I found an online Williams New Testament source. <laughs> and so I wrote him back today. I says, hey, I finally had a chance to use it, and I'm using it here tonight. <laughs> so I went up there, and sure enough, it was there. So you're going to be seeing all kinds of Williams stuff coming out <laughs> here now. Because <laughs> I don't have to sit there and type it or try and scan it or just bring the thing on over. I can just copy and paste now. Glory to God. <laughs> Got to like that, because I love the Williams New Testament. It's just very functional. I like Weiss too, and I do have that available online, but it's, it's not easy. I'll just put it to you that way. I can do it, but it's sometimes it was actually easier for me to type this in than it was for me to go through all the process that I would have to do to, to do it otherwise. But uh, I had room for that one. That was going to be scratched, but I, I said, now we've got enough room to, to put that in, and I want you to be able to see this, to, to what's going on. Let's go on to verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. <clears throat> now see, there's pressure coming up to get them to, hold, to give up their, their profession of faith, their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And there's things that will come against you to get you to stop holding fast your confession. There are temptations that will play on our weaknesses to try and get us to let go of our faith in Him. I put a couple of things in here. This is not an exclusive list. This is not all of the list. This is just a little bit of the list. You can put some other things in here. First off, there's a temptation that's going to come, going to play on your weaknesses to first off get you to stop thinking that He is. The enemy comes. He wants to try and get people to doubt that He is. He who comes to God must believe that He is. That He is. You've got to first of all believe that God exists. If you don't, there's not much that we can do. If you've got people who come to you and they say, I don't believe that God exists, prove it that He does. Say, well, that's fine. If you don't want to believe that He exists, then go. You can't prove it to them. And it's not your job to prove it to them. It's their job to believe that He is. Not your job. Their job. And if they're not going to do their job, you can't help them. Sometimes you just got to walk away from some people and say, look, if you're not even going to believe that God is, there's not much I can do to help you out. So first off, the enemy is going to come and try and get you to believe that, he, he, that he's not. But we have to believe that he is. Secondly, we've got to believe that he cares. See, the enemy wants to come against you. God doesn't care about you. You've been sick. You've been in pain. You've been without. You've got this going on, that going on. God doesn't care about you. If God cared about you, that wouldn't be going on. If God was a God who cared, there wouldn't be poor people in the world. It won't be nations that have, they name all the different things. Because the enemy wants to come against it, cause you to, to think that he doesn't care. But it's our job to make sure we stay in that, that place that he does care. We resist that temptation from the enemy. Because the enemy's trying. He worked with the disciples, remember, on the boat? Jesus doesn't care about you guys. He's down there sleeping. You guys are up here doing the work. Whenever we get into a place, and he can throw a temptation out there. He's going to try and do it. You've got to believe that he is. You've got to believe that he cares. You've got to believe that he is a rewarder. That's my job to believe that he's a rewarder. Well, I know God rewards some people. Don't think he rewards me. This will come out of the mouth of people because they've let go of their faith in some areas. You've got to hang on to your faith. No, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, not just a handful of people. 
not just the ones that he he favors. So like I said, this is not an exclusive list. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just three things. You can put some other things in there as, as well. But the enemy is going to try and tear down pillars of faith. First off, that he is. Secondly, that he cares. Thirdly, that he's a rewarder. And you can go on from there. You can add other things. He's the forgiver. I don't think God forgave me. Well, whether you believe it or not, he is a forgiver. And you can write some other things in on there and don't, don't let the enemy pull these things from you. Because he's certainly going to try and do it. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Sometimes we, lose, we read that and we lose sight of it. What he's saying is we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because whatever it is that we've gone through, he's gone through it. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And just by this verse, you know it is not a sin to be tempted. And temptation comes how? In our thoughts. So when you have a thought that is against the things of God, a wrong thought doesn't mean that you sinned. Because that's how the enemy tries to get in. Just Now you, you dwell on that thought, you embrace that thought, that's a different thing. But just because the temptation comes, just because the thought comes doesn't mean that you sinned. Don't embrace it. So he had these thoughts come in. And you can name it, whatever it is that, whatever it is that you faced. Jesus at some point in his life has faced that. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that means that he was tempted in all the ways that we are, but he didn't give in to it. Now, how is it that he defended himself and didn't give in? What is it that he used? He used the word. That thing that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, he used the word. He used exactly what we have at our disposal. Amen. Except we now have even more. He had the Old Testament to use. We got now all the Gospels, Book of Acts, the Epistles. We got all that added in. So we got even more word than he had. And yet he was successful at defeating the devil just with the word that he had. We saw the time that the devil came and tempted him. And each time he came after him with the word. It is written. It is written. One time the devil came after him with the word. Ah, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You're not going to mess with me on that one. That's not, that's not the whole word of God on that. You're, you're, you're getting the wrong thing. So if, if the word of God that we have was successful in getting Jesus to get through 33 and a half years living on this earth and was not, never fell into sin, it's living and powerful for us and it will help us overcome whatever it is. Whether it might be getting angry at people, becoming selfish, using words we shouldn't use, actions we shouldn't have, not believing the best in people, but assuming the worst. All these things. Do you think that Jesus ever was tempted to not believe the best in people? 
Apparently he was. What did he do? He believed the best in them. So you see, when I fall into a thing and I, I don't believe the best in people, I hold myself up to Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't do this. And we you know we can look at the 12 disciples and say, well, there's this, you know, well, there's probably other people beyond that. How about his brothers? His brothers didn't even believe in him, which kind of tells you a little bit of how the growing up process was. They apparently didn't like him a whole lot. There's probably some things that they did. Wasn't very nice. He probably didn't treat Jesus real well. Probably didn't treat his stuff real well. I don't know if they had locks in the doors then. Probably didn't. Which means they may have gone through and rummaged through some of Jesus' stuff. Messed it up. You know how brothers can be. Maybe even sisters. He was tempted in all these ways. But he didn't give into it. Which means that there's nothing that I face that's too great that the Word of God cannot help me to overcome. So then he goes to verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what he's saying is we have a high priest who's been through all this, can sympathize with the temptation, but has been through it and was successful. Therefore, you can come to him boldly and say, you were successful in this temptation. How did you overcome it? Because I'm not overcoming it so well. And he already knows that. Because everything is laid bare before him. He can see it. He already knows what you're successful with and what you're not. So you don't come timidly before, the, before God trying to hide those things from him because he sees it all. So therefore you come boldly. Because sin tries to get us to be ashamed. Adam was ashamed in the garden. Why? Because he sinned. He tried to hide it from Jesus. He's saying, you don't have to hide anything. I already know. Jesus already knew then. He says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? He already knew. <laughs> he already knew it. See, we can come boldly before because we... Everything that we did that was wrong, he already knows. And he still wants us to come. So we can come boldly. That's why he says, come boldly <clears throat> to the throne of grace. Because when he sits on the throne and we need grace, it's the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, he's going to come along and give us some help. He's not going to just, just wallow around. He wants us to be successful to overcome the temptations that we face. And so there's the Word of God, which is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate, get inside, and give the soul what it needs, spirit what it needs, lifts up the body. And that's there. That's what Jesus used, and He's going to tell you how to use it. You know, if you're... If you like football, if you're going to have a football coach, if you have a quarterback's coach, who makes the better quarterback's coaches? Somebody who was a quarterback. Somebody who faced blitzes and large defensive linemen. Somebody who's faced these things can help you overcome that. And so you, when you come to the coach, you can say, Coach, how do you handle it when this is going on? And you're talking to someone who's been through it. 
and had some success, I would imagine. And you want to say, you know, what did you do? How did you come overcome that? If you were a quarterback getting started in the league and you didn't have a quarterback's coach who was a quarterback, you might seek out somebody like Peyton Manning. I don't know if I was a quarterback. I'm not. <laughs> if I was a quarterback, he'd be a guy I'd be looking out for. You know, he's, he's got some knowledge on some stuff. I'd want to tap into some of that knowledge and find out what's, what's going on. Joe Mantana. He's a great quarterback from the, the past. He, he overcame, did some things. You, know, you can go back and you can look at some of these guys who were successful. And you, what is it that you did that made you successful? That made you so much, so much better? That's what we want to do. We have a high priest who has been in every position possible and has been successful. And I can come to him and say, what did you do? And I don't have to cover up the fact that I have problems because he already knows them. And he wants to help us. So he says, come boldly. That we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, when you need help, help feels good, doesn't it? And that's what he's ready to, ready to do for us. So don't be ashamed when a weakness is exposed, but come to him who can help. Don't be, don't be ashamed. Your high priest is ready and willing. He is sitting there waiting for you to come. Let me help you. Let me help you. Come on. Come and ask me. Come and talk to me about it. And, and that's what you wanted to have going on. You look at the football game on the side. You don't want to see the quarterback's coach, the head coach, running after the quarterback to try and tell him some things. You want the quarterback coming up and finding the coach and say, Coach, what do I need to do? What went wrong here? See, that gives you a different attitude in the quarterback or whatever position is, is there. They have a different attitude. It's a whole different thing if I come and seek help then the help is coming to find me. Changes the attitude that I have in there. So he says, come boldly. Don't come timidly. Come boldly. Because he already knows what's going on. But he still wants you to come. And he's there to help you. And the word of God that is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, is the same thing that Jesus used to overcome every temptation. It's the same thing we're going to use. Except he's going to tell us how to do it. Because he was down here on this earth and he used the word and was successful against the very same enemy that we're coming against. And you know the enemy tried everything he could to get Jesus to sin, because if he could get Jesus to sin, everything falls apart. He threw everything at him that he could, and he was not successful. They threw everything at him, and when he was not successful, he'd certainly help us. Father, we thank you that Jesus, our high priest, can sympathize with what it is that we've gone through, what we face, and he's here to help us. We don't have to try and cover up anything. He knows everything about us anyway. We just come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain help. And I thank you, Father, for the help that you give us give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.